Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message today is, You're Going Down. <laughs> You're Going Down. I wonder if you've ever been, um, if you've ever been invited to go to a game night and uh, you didn't really want to go, but uh, you are friends with or married to somebody who really wanted to go, and so you were informed you will be coming. You will be coming to this game night. Uh, this has happened to me a few different times, and if it's happened to you, you know, like you get, uh, you, you get dragged to these things, and uh, oftentimes, maybe you're just like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know any of these people, okay? I don't, I don't want to be there for a long time. I've had a long week. I don't want to play weird games. I don't want to look stupid, okay? And if your wife is anything like mine, she's just like, you're going to be fine. You were overreacting. You're being weird right now, okay? We're going to go, and I'm like, it's cool, but I don't want to stay forever. So what's our signal going to be so that I can get out of there if I need, and my wife will normally just roll her eyes at me, and I'm like, that's, that's a signal. And she's like, I'm gonna do that a lot during the night, so you're gonna think I'm signaling all the time. And I'm like, I'm fine with that. And you get there, and you're kind of like doing the small talk. They split you up into two teams, and it, this always happens to me where I get put on a team where I'm like, everybody I know is on the other team. And now I'm on a team with all the people that I don't know, and I was the one who didn't wanna come because I don't know all these people. And my wife is on the team with all the people that we do know, which doesn't feel fair to me. Uh, and she's also a person that I know. So that would be like, she's on the other team and it's frustrating. And then they make us, you know, come up with a team name and, you know, we end up becoming the, the, the Cinnabons of Steel and they end up becoming the, the you know, the Stork Corks or whatever. And, and then we, you know, they throw us into this game. And it's some sort of game where we're, we're competing against each other, where it's like taboo or outburst or a number of these like random cranium. I don't know if I'm naming some of the hits that you guys love, but you get thrown into this. And initially from the get-go, I'm just like, this is stupid. I don't like this. I don't want to be here. Cut to 20 minutes later and I'm all in, okay? I don't know, something happens to me, and I mean, if you were to be watching this in a movie and you were to see me just being upset, if you were to just jump cut that footage to 20 minutes later, I would be like, we got this, come on, guys! I'm talking everybody up, I'm talking trash to the other team. I'm getting real personal, like inappropriately so, all right? I'm saying things I shouldn't say. I'm using insider information I know about my wife uh, to get like an advantage. You know what I mean? I'm like, storks, you guys suck, right? And they're like, pastor. And I'm like, I'm not a pastor here. Okay, this is game time. This is different. These are different rules, different mode. Okay, forget what you've known, you think you know about me. It's different here. And then my wife, it's her turn to play. And I'm like, weak link. We're gonna get some points, you guys. And then she rolls her eyes. I'm like, oh no, we're not leaving. She's like, oh no, that wasn't a we're leaving I roll. That was a I might be leaving you I roll. And I'm like, ooh. And um, weirdly, I, I was right. She ended up being the weak link. And we won. <laughs> we won that game night. And I did, I did sleep on the couch for a couple nights. But it felt worth it in a weird sort of way. And I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but I think it, it, this sort of thing happens to a lot of us in different situations because the reality of it is us versus them uh, dynamics are really hard to resist. Well, you get sucked into these sorts of moments. 
uh, where we get put on a team or we get put with some people and suddenly all the people that are with us and that agree with us, we love them. And all the people that are against us or like, you know, positioned in a different direction, we feud with them. Uh, We start hating them uh, over the course of 15 minutes, right? Which is weird. It's a weird sort of thing that happens to us. And what is even more bizarre to me is that we can form tribes around almost anything. Football teams, right? If you like this team, I like you. If you don't, I hate you. Why? You shouldn't have worn those colors. Right? It, just, it just feels natural. TV shows, right? If somebody likes your show, you're like, we are going to get each other. And if they're like, that's stupid. I don't know why anybody likes that. You're like, you're stupid. I don't know why anyone likes you. <laughs> Instantly defensive. Mexican restaurants. You ever gotten in like a real big fight with someone that you are, well, you used to be friends with over which Mexican restaurant in your town is the best? Like, it can get intense, and it's just like, it comes out of nowhere, where you're like, you like abuelos? Okay. They don't even make their own tortillas. I don't even know if that's real Mexican food, okay? And they're like, well, it's better than uh, tchotchkes, okay, because that place is the worst, okay? I'm pretty sure that their salsa is just picante that they're pouring into bowls. And that stuff is disgusting. And then they get really offended and they're like, oh, oh, I see how it is. You know what? The fact that you like that place is everything I need to know about you. We are never going to be friends. It's over between us. And you're kind of fine with it. You know what I mean? Because you're like, I don't ever want to go to that place. It's the worst. And it sounds absurd. But I've lost some friends over salsa preferences. (laughs) It just felt, on the way home, my wife was like, "I, I feel like, you know, like you got a little intense back there. And I'm like, I don't regret anything I said. I said, I told the truth. And she's like, I don't know if it was worth it. And I think it's funny, like how passionate we can get over so many things that really aren't that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. But I think this brings up a really interesting question. What happens when we dis- what we disagree on is a really big deal? It's not some of these smaller things What happens when it's issues of faith and morality and the economy and education? Like these are the things that shape our society. And we don't take these positions in our life lightly. I mean, think about this for a second. If a single no stakes game night can put you at odds with other people, what can decades of being devoted to a particular political perspective do? I wonder how much that could potentially divide you and entrench you, right? We have this way just naturally of being caught up in it, of just being like, this is our team. This is the right way to be and think and vote. That other party is garbage, okay? They don't think for themselves. We're done. The fact that you support that candidate is everything I need to know about you. And we are not gonna be friends. How could you support that? Because if you don't share my views, it doesn't just make you wrong, it probably means you're not even a Christian. And there is a name for this sort of entrenchment, this sort of way of like adapting to a side and writing everybody else off. It's something called fundamental attribution error. And it is the belief that my views are based on basic decency, logic, and facts, 
But any opposing views are obviously based on poor character, ignorance, and oversensitivity. And some of you are like, how is this a fallacy? That is an accurate statement. I don't understand what is wrong with it. That is true. I don't, what, what, are, what are you talking about? And when we buy into this fallacy, we go from disagreeing with other people to being annoyed by them to eventually hating everything about them. And it begins to poison our insides. Political strategist Justin Jaboni uh, wrote this, and I, this is so profound to me. He says, one reality about hating your political opponents is that you start off hating their vices and you end up hating their virtues as well. In your contempt, you begin to believe everything about them is wrong, even their insights and practices that could improve you. Because you get to a place where nothing could be good about anyone who thinks like that, votes like that, supports that. And we get to the place where the contempt becomes so real and so deep for us that we don't want to be around, affiliated, or associated with anybody from the other side. Because if people see us together, then they may think we think what they think. And we can't have that. And this is something we seem to care a lot about. And what is interesting about it is it's something that Jesus seemed to care almost nothing about when you look at his story. But I've noticed that, that many modern Christians feel more comfortable with people who share their politics than people who share their faith. And there's something about that that seems off to me. In fact, a lot of Christians pick a faith community based on who is going to agree with them politically. And what is interesting about this, when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus spent time with all sorts of people and he filled his inner circle with people who were all over the map politically. In other words, he had the opposite approach of a lot of modern Christians today. Just look at the disciples. Okay, you have Matthew who wrote one of the gospel accounts. He's a wealthy religious conservative working as a tax collector in support of the Roman government, which a lot of his surrounding friends and family thought was evil. You have James, son of Alphaeus, who was a nationalist zealot who wanted to overthrow the Roman government by force if necessary. He was Matthew's little brother. Same family, both disciples, opposite political views. You have Philip, who was a liberal, who consistently frustrated conservatives with his unapologetic love of and participation in secular Greek culture. You have Bartholomew, who was very highly educated and progressive, and often, there's actually accounts in the Gospels of him making fun of working class people for being too simple to understand politics. These are four of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to be part of his inner circle, and they couldn't have had more vastly different views on politics. And when Jesus recruits them, they've all got to be thinking like, man, this is cool that we made the cut. And also, I can't wait to see and hear like which of our political views Jesus shares. But instead of entering into their you know, debates about their earthly kingdoms, he spent most of his time talking about the parameters of his heavenly kingdom. His attitude was essentially, you don't have to discard your politics to follow me, but you do have to prioritize them beneath me. 
that is required in order to follow me, to follow me first. And they were like, yeah, totally got it, absolutely. But you've got some concerns, right? I mean, when you look at the landscape of what is happening today, like you've got something. I mean, we all have things that fire us up, Jesus. Like we all have certain hills we would die on. Like what's yours? You can tell us. It's just the 12 of us, okay? <laughs> it's not like one of us is, or four of us is going to write this down and share it with everyone. They did. <laughs> and, and Jesus does sort of answer this question. One of the last things Jesus says when he's with his disciples here on earth is he tells them about a priority that he has and he, he openly prays for it. And this is what he says. John chapter 17, verse 20 says this. I'm praying not only for these disciples, for you, 12, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one just as the Father and I are one. So Jesus prays that his followers, that anyone who believes in him, who seeks to follow him, prioritize him in their life. Anybody who would call themselves a Christian later in life would be unified. Is that what you pray for? Or is it more like the, the stuff that most people pray for? Like, God, you gotta help me get this raise. Help my kids get into like a really good school. Help my two pint a day ice cream habit not to make me fat. Jesus, you gotta help me. <laughs> right? This is the way most people pray, right? A lot of our prayers are very self-focused. But if I wanted to know what was really important to you, I would really only have to do three things. I would look at your credit card statements. I would look at your calendar. And I would look at the content of your prayers. These are the things that point to what is actually truly important to people. And because this is true, when we look at what Jesus is doing in this moment, the reason he prays for unity is because it's really important to him, which ought to give us pause to notice that of all the things Jesus could pray about and could elevate as of the utmost importance, some of the last things that he tells people before going to be with the Father, it's this. And I would tell you that if what's most important to Jesus is not all that important to you, you may not be following Jesus. You may just be using him to get into heaven or to get you whatever it is you think you want here on earth. And the weird thing is, when I think about uh, our life and our society today, I think most of us seem to be concerned with everything but what Jesus was most concerned about. And what we fail to realize is that Jesus didn't just pray for unity because he felt like, man, a unified Christian people right, would be able to get me closer to my goals. For Jesus, unity was the goals. which I think presents us the really big question. Will you choose Christ-centered unity over your political party? Whew. Now I know some of you are thinking like, okay, before I answer, um, 
are we sure what being one means? I mean, I know sometimes you like drag out like the Greek verses and all these different sorts of things. Like, like how unified are we supposed to be? Because it feels kind of vague. It feels like a vague concept. And I don't know if I want to commit to this until I understand what's really going on here. And Jesus is so brilliant. He knew you and I were going to ask that question. And so he spent a lot of time clarifying exactly what he meant, exactly what his definition of unity was. And if you're a Christian, this is really the only definition that matters because being a Christian is essentially all about taking the words and way of Jesus seriously. And a, a lot of what he has to say about this idea appear in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, this sort of pass, long passage of not really as much one sermon, but these are a collection of things that Jesus said all the time. So much that people are like, oh, here we go. I could say this verbatim. I could get up and teach it for him. And these things appear as a collection in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to just read you a few excerpts. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says this. You've heard that you must not murder, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Now, some of us are like, that's a little tough. Also, how do you not get angry? I mean, how do you not get fuming mad? Like, how do you not feel like you just want to, like, argh, like, rip somebody up and down because of the stupid things that these idiots are posting and doing? And Jesus continues. And if you call someone an idiot... Or curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's not great. Some of you are like, that's not good, because I definitely call people idiots. Well, it's a category of people. And others of you are like, idiots, that's not, I would never say that. My insults are way more sophisticated than <laughs> idiot. Some of my go-tos are like woke, snowflake, elitist, incel, lemming, sheeple, misogynist, scum, thugs, trolls, baby killer, beta, libtard, safe spacer, trigger baby. And we don't feel bad about saying any of these things because in our culture, the demonization of everyone in the other party is okay now. And there are plenty of pundits and even pastors who will give you permission to fear, hate, and mock anybody on the other side. But you know who will not give you that permission? Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells us our hateful speech is a product of a hate-filled heart. And that's not who he's called you to be. Because the reality is you can't live in unity with someone that you only think the worst of and make fun of. And I know our pushback is like, yeah, but, but they're our enemies. Are they though? Your friends, your neighbors, your children, your coworkers are your enemies? Let's go with that though. Let's say that they, all these people are, your, they're all out to get you. You know what Jesus tells us to do to our enemies, right? You guys are gonna love this. This is what he says. Matthew chapter five, verse 44. Love your enemies. Okay, that didn't go... Pray for those who persecute you, and in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. If you, love, if you uh, love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even tax collectors do that much. Even the other guys do that much. Even corrupt 
Politicians do that much. Even the Democrats do that. Even the Republicans are willing to do that. I mean, come on. Jesus tells us to love and serve those who oppose us. Is that what you do? Is that what people are like, oh man, I could tell you. I'm not, I, I know some about their politics, but I'll tell you this, man, they love and serve anyone who sets themselves against them. Whew, that is their one defining characteristic. Do you pray for anybody on the other side of the political aisle? Like, just to clarify, to pray for, not at or against. <laughs> so I know these tricks, right? Like, he's not talking about, like, God, just please, I pray that you just let them know how stupid they are and how they're all being led astray and open their eyes to the truth, which is obviously, like, whatever I think it is. And, um, you know, thanks for not making me like them. Thanks for making me better than they are. And help them to hate themselves for being such horrible people. Feel free to give them whatever punishment you see fit to help, you know, show them the light. I mean, I'm fine with it. Burn their house down if you have to. Give them diarrhea. Whatever you want to do, just make it unpleasant, Lord, in the name of Jesus. But that's not what this is about, right? Jesus is telling us to pray on behalf of them, which looks more like, like God, bless them. Meet every single need they have. God, help them to experience joy, your joy in this life. Heal whatever hurts they are carrying around with them day to day. Give them wisdom. God, you know what? Anything good that I have asked for, for me and my family, do for them. That's what Jesus is talking about. And maybe some of you are thinking like, that's crazy. I, mean, I can't do that. <laughs> Maybe because I, I, don't, I don't want to. Um, I don't like them, okay? And they don't like me. And that's fine because, you know, everything is good between me and God and that's really all that matters. Except that, that Jesus talks about that too. In Matthew chapter five, verse 23, he says this. If you're presenting a sacrifice in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there, go and be reconciled to that person, and then come offer your sacrifice to God. So just to like recap what's being said here. If you're in church, and you realize that there is an unresolved issue between you and someone else, leave. Right then, go make things right with that person first. In other words, Jesus is saying like, don't you dare Use your devotion to God as an excuse to avoid repairing your relationships with others. So the second you realize that something is off, even if it's in the middle of your favorite worship song, get up, go to them, listen, and apologize, and make amends, even if what they did was way worse than the part that you did. Do it anyway. And once you have done all that, then come back and we'll have church. Because if you don't try to make things right with others, you will never feel right with God. No matter how many worship songs you sing, no matter how much time you spend in church, no matter how big of a check you write, it's not gonna feel like enough because these two concepts are intertwined. We wanna separate them, but they're inseparable. Loving God and loving others. She just said it this way, Matthew chapter 22 Verse 37, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first 
and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we tend to think of these as two separate commands, but they're really two parts of the same principle. They're two sides of the same coin. And Jesus is essentially saying, like, you can't love God without sacrificing on behalf of your neighbors. It's not possible. And you cannot serve your neighbors, especially the most annoying ones, without it growing your love for God. That's what it does. Because in the mind of Jesus, Christianity isn't just believing in Jesus, it's behaving like Jesus. The truth is you can choose to follow Jesus or not, but you don't get to choose what following Jesus looks like. He tells us what that is. It looks like loving and serving your neighbors well. All of them. Not just your favorites, not just those on your team, not just those on your side, not just those who think and act and vote like you. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no such thing as right and wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't need to sit down and talk things out. It doesn't mean that things won't ever get heated. But it does mean refusing to assume that anyone who disagrees with me lacks character, is ignorant, and is overly emotional. It means that you choose to see every human being as a child of God, just like you. That you have been called to love just like Jesus loves you. And here's what is crazy. Jesus loves you even when you're wrong. And you are wrong most of the time. <laughs> he doesn't let it get in the way of the way he treats you. So how do we do this practically? I want to give you just a handful of really practical tips. Um, when you interact with somebody who thinks differently than you, I want you to begin with four assumptions that will help you to see them, love them, and serve them like Jesus. And the first is this. Assume that you have more in common than not. When you're actually going to something just being like, they're different, they're dumb, whatever, you've already decided that we have nothing in common, there's no common ground. You've already set yourself up in an us versus them battle. It's not helpful. But if you assume that you have more in common than not, you begin there and it humanizes both of you. And Jesus was an expert at this. The second is this, to assume that their reasoning is in response to real experiences. Again, this is where that fallacy comes into effect. We're like, well, I've come to where I'm at for like real experiences, but they're making stuff up. That never happened to them. They didn't experience that. Well, but you've never lived the way they've lived. You've never had that color of skin. You've never had that background, those experiences. You never grew up in that part of the country. You never had that encounter, that interaction. You didn't have that mom. And all these things affect people. The third assumption is this, to assume that there's something you don't know that they could teach you. I think a lot of the political fights we get into are like, I've already decided that anything you have to say is idiotic. I know everything I need to know. But when we begin with, I, I bet there's some things I don't know. I bet there's even of the things I don't know, which there are a lot, I bet there's some things that I don't know that you do know. And I wonder what I could learn from you. I wonder what you could teach me. Most of us go into an argument, a debate, a conversation, being like, oh, I'm gonna teach them all the things. If I have to duct tape their mouth and slap them around. But that's... 
that's not going to help the situation. Going in with the assumption that I may not be the smartest person in this room and there's only two of us. Maybe the most helpful thing to some of your relationships. And the fourth thing is to assume that there's more than one way to address an issue. I find this a lot with a lot of people who are even Christians who are like, well, I'm passionate about this. That's why you have to vote this way. And they're like, I'm passionate about the same thing and I'm voting a different way. What? It's actually possible for you to care about something, but to care about it differently than somebody else in a different order. To think that maybe there's a different strategy to solve that issue that both of your hearts beat for. But a lot of times that is not the assumption that we make. We assume that there's only one way to remedy this situation. Obviously, I have figured out which it is. And anyone who doesn't agree with me is an idiot. And then once you say that, then you're in danger of hell. It's a whole spiral that you don't want to be a part of. But if you invite the Holy Spirit to help you start here with these assumptions, do you know what I think you'll discover? That you and those you disagree with, that you care about a lot of the same things in different ways, in a different order, you'll, you'll realize that, that their environment and experiences had a lot to do with shaping their views, just like yours did you. You'll realize that there are things that you don't know and that they have lived in insight that you've never considered that could actually really help you be a better person who looks more like Jesus. But you will never arrive at any of these unifying discoveries with an us versus them mindset, which is why Jesus was adamant that you need to leave it behind. It's natural to sort of divide up into teams and become entrenched in yours and demonize the other. And Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into something that is supernatural. Something that I know is gonna be so difficult, I'm gonna pray that God will help you do it because you're gonna need God's help to do this thing that is impossible without him. This is why I wanna challenge you this week to meditate on this question, to really write it down and think about it. Do I feel more camaraderie with people who share my faith or people who share my politics? Do I feel more camaraderie with people who share my faith or people who share my politics? And if you answer this question honestly and it doesn't feel as Christ-like as you want it to, it may be time to have some conversations with people who disagree with you based on the four assumptions I mentioned earlier. Because if unity was Jesus' priority and he's our priority, then we have to make unity a big deal to us. And I think if Jesus, in only choosing 12 people, picks people from every side of the aisle imaginable and puts them together and says, now, follow me. Let's build something brand new. I think there's something in there for us too. And I wanna pray that God would empower you to do this. I wanna pray Jesus' prayer over you and me because without his help, we have no hope. But with his help, we have all the hope in the world.
Would you bow your heads across this room with me? God, I'm so grateful for your love for us. I'm grateful that you came to earth to live among us, to experience our lives, the complications of what it means to be human and how easy it is to side against each other and then try and pull you onto our team. And God, I pray that as we move forward, that we would allow to be stirred up in our souls what it was you prayed for. That each of us, no matter where we stand politically, no matter what candidates we support or what policies we prefer, that all that stuff would be secondary to the words and way of Jesus. God, I pray that you would make us one, unified as you and your father are unified, where you have completely different personalities, where you're a different people, but you are unified in heart, in cause, in priority. And God, I pray that you would make that so in our lives. God, may we have interactions, conversations, meetups with people who think differently, who vote differently, who feel differently, who have had different experiences. And God, may you give us compassion, understanding. God, may we be willing to fight for each other, to love our neighbors in the same way we love ourselves, to love those who are different and serve those who are different and sacrifice for those who are even opposed to us in the same way we would serve our own family. Because in Christ, we are all family. May we act like it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.